The songs we just sang are certainly very encouraging. We'll glorify the King of Kings. That's the second one we just sang. And how, in fact, enthralling in so many ways that brings to our heart and mind a great opportunity that's ours, even in the aspect of worship. It's good to see each and every person here today, of course. And it's our desire that we may continue in our service in a way that not only will magnify God's name, but will also encourage each of us in the appropriate way to be strong and dedicated and faithful in our service. You can trust the Lord. That's the title I've given to the lesson today. I hope that you have that text in Mark 7, or Matthew 17 marked, and we'll get back to that in just a few moments. These introductory thoughts will motivate us as we prepare to move into the lesson proper here in just a moment. Do you trust Jesus? Do I trust Him? It may sound as though that's such a basic question. Almost evident, and you and I would be quick to answer, I'm sure, in the split second that we would expect the answer to be yes. But I hope today that we can use some verses in the Word of God that will, in fact, put us in the position of some of those living about 20 centuries ago, and we can ask them, do you really trust Him? And by the way, that is going to, of course, have a great impact upon you and me as well. Isn't it fair to say, as that opening statement will present it, the degree to which you and I trust Jesus will determine, for the most part, whether we will obey Him or not. Oh, we may obey Him as long as it's convenient, but when it gets to be inconvenient or when it gets to be what I would rather not be doing than to still obeying Him is going to ultimately hinge on, do I really trust Him? Do I really trust Him? And so today, let's give some study to that particular topic. And may I say that in many avenues of life, we're somewhat aware of how important that idea is. That child who trusts his father and mother, trusting that they're always going to take care of and do that which is in his or her best interest, they learn to understand that and it will motivate them in a great deal of conviction toward whatever dad and mom say. Well, by the same token, if an employee comes to realize this employer's got my back, he or she is going to, in fact, always act on behalf of that which is in the best interest of myself in relation to the company. It gives a great deal of freedom and a great deal of movement to that person's belief. Let's close that slide like this. As we ask questions about do we trust the Lord... Let's look at first three sections in the Word of God. And we'll start with this one. Matthew chapter 20. It's only three chapters forward from where the lesson text was. But would you notice verse number 17 of that chapter? Matthew chapter 20, verse number 17. And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. As the Lord was journeying toward Jerusalem, you and I know very well from our position this side of His death that He was giving information about the manner in which He was going to die. 
Now, I would say that you and I perhaps are aware of some people who've committed suicide. They have taken their own life, and they even did this in a very detailed fashion. But for any rational, sane person, you and I know we can't predict in detail the nature of our death. We can't tell you when it'll be. We can't tell you those events surrounding it. And yet, did you notice what the Lord taught here? He said, in Jerusalem, He told them where He was going to die. Not only that, He said it's going to be prompted by these Gentiles. For after all, He's going to be handed over to them and they're going to mock Him, namely Himself. And not only that, they're going to scourge Him. Now, if you were one of the disciples, one of those favored twelve who had been with Jesus, how accepting of that would you have been? We've seen this man raise the dead. We've seen this man heal the blind. We've seen this man heal those that were lamed. We have seen him work amazing things. And now you mean to tell me that you are going to be beaten? You are going to be mocked? You are going to be crucified? My suspicion is that you and I would have every right to ask, Peter, do you trust him? Is that really what you believe is going to happen to him? John, do you really trust him? Do you believe that's what's going to happen to him? Read on further. It says, And the third day he shall rise again. They had never seen anybody. Other than who the Lord had raised, they'd never seen anybody rise from the dead. Nobody. Do you now see the point? Jesus had just made a claim to them that this is what's going to happen. Do you believe me? Do you believe that what I've just told you is what's going to happen? Now, you and I know full well that Judas didn't believe it, and he would have been one of the group with him. Question again for you and me, do you trust him? All he has to do is say something one time. And if you and I trust him, then we will accept what he has said as truth, and we will be happy to act in behalf of whatever that thing he has said. You'll notice in this passage, it of course concerned the character of his death. I've asked you to notice a few, additional a few additional details. Among this, he said on the third day. Now you and I noticed near the bottom of that slide that Jesus himself had earlier said, has he made discussion of what happened to Jonah? Well, so too that the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he had already given some indication to this. And he had already given some discussion as it connected to it. But Luke 18.34 says the disciples did not believe it. In other words, they didn't understand it. Today, there are many things that Jesus has revealed in His Word, and the human family might make the claim, Oh, we believe you, Jesus, whatever you have to say. But when it comes right down to it, you and I know full well that the majority of people just do not trust Him. They don't believe He meant what He said. They don't believe He said what He meant. There are those in our world today who, despite what the teaching of the Word of God so clearly is, they will stand in the presence of others and say, if Jesus were here, He would not do that. When all the, war, all the while, that's exactly what's in His Word. They don't believe Him. They don't trust Him. 
They think they know better than he does. They put words into his mouth as if they tell him what he really meant. Do you and I trust him, really? No wonder in that light. Let's look at another scene. So I think we can imagine the earnestness of this one and what it was connected to his death. But you'll notice in Luke 24, 8, in the aftermath of His crucifixion and His resurrection, there was still a great deal of misunderstanding. Even then, they hadn't fully come to grips with what was happening. I have particularly in mind that scene on the road to Emmaus. There were some, a couple of disciples, and they were walking. And it had been the time wherein the resurrection, of course, had occurred. And Jesus directly spoke to them and said, This is that which had been spoken by the prophets. You see, it had been in the Bible all along. It had been revealed by God all along. May we never underestimate that book we hold in our hand. For if we trust Him, we're going to be guided by what this says, because we'll believe what it says. And we will accept the rewards for those who do live in compliance with it, but we'll also not be fooled into thinking we can disobey it and somehow everything's okay. As you and I close that slide, let's ask a few other questions. Jesus had spoken about His death and the means by which it would occur, and He had spoken about the character of His own resurrection. And they had never seen anything like that happen, apart again from his working with people like Jairus' daughter. There's a lot of other times Jesus has spoken about things, and you and I have never seen it either. Do we believe it's going to happen? He has talked about a day of judgment when every human being who has ever lived, without exception, is going to give an account for the deeds done in the body. Do you believe you're going to be there? Do I believe I'm going to be there? Do you and I believe we shall individually be apparent before the great Son of God who will have books opened and He'll say, I see that your life is such that you accepted me. To the best of your ability, you obeyed me. My blood has forgiven your sins and into heaven you shall go. Do we believe there's going to be those there that are going to hear that? Do we believe that there are going to be those there who are going to be in this position? You knew exactly what I said. Word for word, you perhaps could even assert it and quote it. And you never did anything about it. You know, I did mean what I said. But you apparently didn't trust me. I have no recourse, but the fact that you are thus subject to the sins you've committed, they've never been forgiven, to hell you shall go. Do we believe that that's going to happen? We live in a time when, by and large, judgment is not as seriously considered as it once was. We think there are always excuses and rationalizations. Well, I had good reason why I didn't do it. There will be no good reasons. Do you and I trust Him? Let's try another example. This time, as innocent a situation as fishing. Now we in this part of the world know a lot about fishing. Maybe you many times have taken a cane pole or a fishing rod in hand and headed to a pond or the lake or the river, and we all know how that tends to turn out. 
But you know, there was more than one scene in the Bible wherein the Master, in fact, either himself or directly gave instruction concerning it. Let's develop a scene as it comes near the close of the Word of God itself. That is the Gospel accounts in John 21. Turn over there for just a moment. Let's discuss some matters about fishing. John, the 21st chapter. By this point, the Master has been crucified. He's already been resurrected, though. And what a joyous occurrence that was. May I begin reading in verse 1 of John 21. After these things, Jesus showed Himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That's the Sea of Galilee. And on this wise showed He Himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana of Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other of His disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a-fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. Let's pause for just a moment. You and I might remember, here was a situation, a scene in which Jesus, of course, had already been crucified and resurrected, and in the aftermath of that, in the weeks that followed, we find here that there was a subset of the disciples gathered together. We have a listing of them in verse 2. And then Peter makes this bold statement, I'm going fishing. You and I might do well to remember Peter was a commercial fisherman. If anyone knew about fishing on the Sea of Galilee, surely it was Peter. Keep that thought in mind. Here was a man who had made his living before becoming a disciple in fishing. Now, we remember other of the disciples were also fishermen. Andrew was a fisherman, as well as James and John, the sons of Zebedee. All of them knew very, very well about fishing the Sea of Galilee. And yet, verse number 3 points out, they entered into a ship and they launched out into the sea. And the text says, that night... They fished a long while, but caught not one thing. Not one thing. Commercial fishermen who didn't catch a single thing. Let that impress you and I, because let's come to the next verse. And when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples knew not who it was. They were some distance from the shore. It had gotten light enough. They could see somebody on the shore, but not knowing who it was... Verse 5, Jesus speaking said, Children, have you any meat? That was the Lord's way of asking, How much did you catch overnight? Did you catch anything? They answered, No. Commercial fishermen who had caught nothing. The Lord continues to say in verse number 6, Cast the net on the right side of the boat. Some distance from shore, Jesus called to them, giving them that instruction. Now, the Lord wasn't a commercial fisherman like they were. But let's read what happened. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it in for the multitude of fishes. Consider this. They were the ones who should have known what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. 
Who's that man on the shore to tell me anything? I know how to fish the Sea of Galilee. I've been doing it all my life. Peter could have responded that way. Andrew, the others that might have been present, they easily could have made statements about like that. And maybe they could have said, Peter, let's go to shore. We're wasting our time here. That man, what does he know? He's not a fisherman like we are. Peter, do you trust the Lord? What about those other disciples mentioned in verse 2? Do you trust Him? Now, they didn't even know at that moment, at least, who the Lord was. But they cast the net on the side that He told them. And they took up this great catch of fish. And then the following statement occurs in verse number 7. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, he said unto Peter, It is the Lord. It is the Lord. Can you trust the Lord? Can you and I trust Him? Here in a matter concerning fishing, He knew where the fish was, and He knew what would result in a catch, and He knew what the circumstances surrounding that would be. I'm sure after the fact, they were very thankful that they had trusted Him. Let's read how it ends. Verse number 7, Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girded his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and he did cast himself into the sea. He swam to shore. He was so overwhelmed, so moved by what had just happened, and the nature of the fact that the one whom he had seen nailed to a cross not many weeks before was now the very one who had given him instruction. He was excited. He swam to shore. Peter trusted the Lord at that moment. It again begs you and I to think about things like this. As these questions were asked of them, may I say that this isn't the only scene in the Bible that challenges us in the matter of fishing. I use that one as an introduction to this section. Now let's turn back to Matthew 17 which was the lesson text of the lesson this morning. The background, as I've tried to identify on that particular slide, was this. Beginning in verse 24 of Matthew 17, the text reads as follows, And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? Let's pause at that point. The Jewish economy was based very strongly upon what God had indicated back in Exodus 30. Every Jew that came to the temple was commanded to offer the half shekel. It was a tax levied on every individual that entered through the nature of the doors of that tabernacle. And of course, that money was utilized to upkeep all the things the Levites were supposed to do concerning that temple. But you'll notice it was the half shekel. It was a half shekel per person. In that connection, these people in Capernaum, they asked, Peter, does your master pay tribute? Let's see how Peter reacted. The first three words of verse 18, or rather verse 25, He saith, yes. Jesus, his master, Peter said, yes, he pays tribute. He is a worthwhile and a good Jew, if you please. But now notice what Peter 
subsequently did. And when he, that's Peter, was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom, or tribute of their own children, or of strangers? It would seem that Peter was making ready to ask Jesus about offering tribute. Do you, in fact, offer tribute? But the Lord asked him a question first. The Lord asked Peter this question. Peter, what do you think about this? The kings of the earth, when they charge taxes of their citizens, do their children pay the taxes? Or do the servants to the king pay the taxes? That's a good question. Let's read the answer in verse 26. Peter saith unto him of strangers. Peter said, It's not the children of the king that pay the taxes. It's the subjects in the kingdom. Jesus then said, Then are the children free? So if the stranger are the ones that pays the taxes, does that mean the king's children don't have to pay any? Does that mean that they're free? Well, certainly that was the understanding of the day and time. And probably you and I would well give consideration connected to that as well. But notice this. Jesus was the Son of God. So as a child of God, as the only begotten Son of God, it wasn't needful for Him to pay the taxes. But yet verse 27 says this, "...notwithstanding lest we should offend them." Go thou to the sea, and cast an hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money. That take, and give unto them for me and thee. I'd like you to imagine that if you would. All the times you've ever been fishing, how many times have you found money in a fish's mouth? My suspicion is not one time has anybody in this room ever found money in a fish's mouth. No matter how many times you may have gone fishing, no matter how many times you may have brought up a fish and perhaps even used that to feed yourself and your family. And Jesus gave these instructions to Peter. Peter, so that we don't offend them, here's what I want you to do. You go fishing. And the very first fish you take up, look in its mouth. And when you do, you will find not the half shekel, which would be sufficient for one person, you'll find twice that amount. May I ask, can you trust the Lord? If He could tell Peter about two shekels, two half shekels in a fish's mouth, if he knew that detail of existence, and if he knew the reality of it that thoroughly, is he not trustworthy? I think that's a rather remarkable record in the Word of God, don't you? To appreciate that Jesus knew the events and the development of time so thoroughly that something as obscure and as rare as that, he could explicitly say that it was going to happen, and it did. And remember, Peter was a fisherman. Don't you know how that impressed him? How many thousands of fish over the course of his life had he caught, opened up that fish, sold it in the meat market? And how many times out of all those occurrences had he found a double shekel in a fish's mouth? 
I'm sure not a single time. And for the Lord to tell him it was going to happen, and it did exactly when the Lord said, Don't you know Peter left that scene renewed again as to how much the Lord can be trusted? As you and I close that slide, let's make some applications then to us. Jesus has spoken in His Word about what will make the best life for us here. Now, the human family, we tend to be rather resistant, don't we? I know what I need better than anybody else. That's the typical thought of of most people. You don't have any business telling me what's best for me. I know what's best for me. If Jesus could talk about a double shekel in a fish's mouth, And if he could impress upon a commercial fisherman the reality of that event, can he not be trusted in every regard? And when he says that certain things are not good, they're just not healthy, and they won't lead to what's in your best interest, we would do well to accept fully and completely what he says. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our strengths. And He knows what temptations can ultimately bring us to a point of failure if that weakness is allowed to have its way. I've asked you to close that slide then like this. We live in a world that following thinking like that has borrowed, if you'll pardon the expression, hook, line, and sinker, a wrong plan of salvation. So many in our world are under the illusion that you do not have to do anything but accept Jesus into your heart and pray in order to be saved. The vast majority of Christendom accepts that as if there is no question. When all the while didn't Jesus say, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved? Mark 16, 16. Wasn't it Jesus who prompted His inspired writers to record many other things such as, Baptism doth also now save us. Do you believe Him or not? Most of our world will be quick to say yes, but their actions say no. And if we aren't careful, we might be guilty of something, at least in principle, pretty much like it. Jesus has given us words, of course, that indicate certain behaviors are not right. Gossiping's wrong. But I just had to tell somebody, do you believe Him or not? If I believe Him, then I won't fall into that kind of thing. And those other behaviors of which the New Testament speaks so boldly. Jesus said, you've got to love your enemies. But Lord, you just don't know what He's done to me. I've got a knife sticking out of my back proverbially because of what He did to me. And I trusted Him once. Jesus would ask, have you prayed for him? Matthew 5.45 commands it. Have you tried to do him some good? Matthew 5.45 again urges it. Are you holding a grudge against him? Romans 12.19 says you can't. Do I believe him or not? It's a good set of questions, isn't it? And it prompts us to realize that If we'll follow the Master and trust what He has to say, whether it be with regard to fish or the other things that we have learned, it brings us 
to one final lesson, and then this lesson will be yours. There was one other one that I thought would be worthwhile for our consideration. So far, whether it be fishing, whether it be his death, this one in some ways may be the most surprising of all. Would you turn with me to the scene of Mark 14? That's where we'll at least be here in just a few moments. While you're turning there, let me share with you at least a few thoughts about the background of this idea. Ever since the days of Exodus 12, God had given commandment relative to their celebration of the Passover. Every year, in the first month of the year, on the tenth day of the month, they were to take up a lamb, and if the family was sufficiently small, they and a nearby family could share in this. And they were to kill it on the fourteenth day of the month, and they were to appreciate the message of God's deliverance of them from Egypt. And that was to be a yearly reminder of how good to them God had been. Immediately following that, there was a feast of unleavened bread, and there was to be no leaven in the house at all. But it was in that connection that Jesus, of course, had celebrated the Passover in times past with His disciples, but now it's the final time while He was in the flesh. We come to Mark chapter 14. Would you notice with me some of the statements to be found on that location? Beginning in verse 12, it says, And the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, his disciples saith unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? So you can imagine the disciples' question, Lord, we need a place. After all, there's 12 of us, and counting you, that's 13. We need a place where we can celebrate the Passover. Where do you want us to do it? Verse 13, He sendeth forth two of His disciples, and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the goodman of the house, The master saith, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he shall show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. Let's pause at that point. We'll finish it in just a moment, but would you be impressed? Here were some disciples, and they asked Jesus, the time of celebration for the Passover is nearly here. Where should we make ready? The Lord, without any hesitation, in verse 13, sends two of them, and He gave them some signs or some instructions, and this is what He told them. You go into the city. And you're going to meet a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. Notice they weren't to talk to him. They weren't to have any other conversation with him. You just follow him. We might already pause and ask this. You and I might be impressed with, with how rare that was. All the times in the Old Testament that you remember... As, for instance, when Abraham's servant went to find a wife for, for Isaac, who was bearing the water? Who went to the well to get the water? A woman. Later in the Old Testament, every example, as far as I know, that we have, 
it was the typical job or the task or the chore attached to womanhood that she was to go get the water. How rare would it have been to find a man bearing a pitcher of water? My guess is it may have been those two disciples had never seen a man bearing a pitcher of water. Jesus said, that's what you're going to find. The text goes on to say, you follow Him. But not only that, look at verse 14. Wherever He goes in, you say to the goodman of that house, the owner of that house, the one who has charge or jurisdiction of it, you say words like these. The master, where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And then Jesus told those two, that man's going to show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. How likely would that have been? To find a sizable place like that already furnished and already prepared wherein the Passover can be celebrated. At this point, there's already at least three things that would have been incredibly rare, if not near impossible, at least in their sight. And yet, as we read the next verse, verse 16 goes on to say, And his disciples went forth and came into the city and found as he had said unto them. They found it exactly like Jesus had said. A man was bearing a pitcher of water. Now notice, it's not that he was bearing anything else. It had to be a pitcher and it had to include water. They followed him. He did go to a place wherein the owner, the, the master, if you please, did indeed have a large upper chamber, both ready and prepared. Those two disciples had to be impressed. If you were to ask them, do you trust the Lord after this had happened? Surely they would have said yes. Surely they would have been reminded of just how exquisite the Lord's knowledge is. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew when it was going to happen. And He knew how it was going to happen. As you and I close that slide, may I say He knows things to the point where you and I can ask, do you trust the Lord? We've looked at three episodes in the gospel accounts today concerning fishing, as rare as it would be to find a double shekel in the mouth of the first fish caught, and the Lord knew it. And a man bearing a pitcher of water that would lead to a room that not only was furnished and ready, but that the owner would be happy to let Jesus use. It all happened. And His death and His crucifixion and His resurrection happened exactly as He said He would. You and I can trust the Lord. We've looked at these evidences, which I hope are encouraging enough to let us know that He is a safe repository for your conviction and mine. Is it any wonder later Paul could say, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed unto Him against that day. 2 Timothy 1 verse 12. If you haven't yet trusted the Lord, why are you waiting? I hope we've at least seen enough evidences that no matter what the issues of your life may be, He can help you. He can offer in His Word that which is needful to overcome whatever those matters are, and your life will be better. 
and your life after this one will be best of all. But if you reject Him, if you try to go your own way, if you try to use your own wisdom and knowledge, you aren't going to know about the double shekel in a fish's mouth. And you aren't going to know about the man who could take you to a place where the Passover can be celebrated. They would never have known apart from Jesus. And today, you and I will never know the sweetness of heaven if we don't trust Him because we'll never be allowed to enter. If today you would wish to make a public response to the gospel's call of invitation and put your trust in Jesus, then you realize we're only asking you to do what He asks you to do. Believe in Him. Repent of your sins. Confess His name and be baptized. If you, though, have begun walking with Him, and maybe you did trust Him at one time, but as of today, you just don't. Enough other things have happened in life, and you've allowed them to lead to cracks in your faith. And you just aren't sure anymore. Don't forget about what we've studied today. The devil's trying his best to make those cracks open up into large fissures. You need to let Jesus start putting some of the glue of faith back on those cracks. And shore that up so that you can close your life and live faithfully till death and then go home to glory. If we could help you be reinstated to a position of faithfulness today, if you'll confess those sins and you'll repent of them, He'll forgive you and we'll be delighted to pray to God for you. If we could help you today in those regards, why don't you trust in the Lord with all your heart and let us help you in any way we can while together we stand and while we sing.